Good morning, everyone. My name is Scott, and it's so, so good to have you with us, especially if you're uh, brand new with us. Uh, thanks for being our guest. We, uh, we're, we're thrilled that you're, you're here. You're uh, with us, if you're new, uh, only in the second week of a, a new series that we're doing in the book of Galatians. So Paul wrote a letter to the churches that were in Galatia, and it's one of the most powerful uh, sections of the New Testament. So we're going to be studying that together, and I, I highly encourage you in the coming weeks and months as we study, um, and especially like if, if you're new to the Bible, this is a great way to start learning about Scripture, about God, and like we, we really uh, highly encourage, and it's intimidating. I, mean, I remember the first time I picked up a Bible and had no idea and would go to a Bible study and just felt like, oh, people are going to call on me and I'm not going to know what to say. Or, and I remember reading through the whole Bible the first time and just being incredibly confused. But I tell you, uh, the more you pick up God's Word and, and interact with it, especially as we study it, just the more you'll get out of it. And so I encourage you to uh, take what we learn here on Sunday mornings. One of the ways you can do that and go deeper is to pick up um, this book that we're going to be kind of following along in some ways as we study. This is Tim Keller's book called Galatians to You. Um, we had 10 copies this morning when we started. Uh, we're down to about four or five, I think, out there. Uh, we're just asking what we paid for them, about 18 bucks. You can get them on Amazon also, and I just encourage you, pick up one of these copies, read along uh, as devotion and that kind of thing. You'll really, you'll really get a lot out of it. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Galatians 1, and if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. If you don't own a Bible, we have them out by the information uh, table, and if you're new here and need a Bible, please grab one. They're our gift to you, and we also have Tim Keller's book on the Psalms. It's a prayer book, a daily, a daily book to pray through, so if you're new, grab one of those too. Uh, it's our gift to you, so just so glad that you joined us. Let's read along in Galatians 1, verses 10 through 24. Paul says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that we preached, that was preached by me, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I preached, um, how I persecuted. I, I need glasses, you guys. Like I have glasses, but I'm in that time where I need reading glasses all the time, and I'm just resisting it. So I apologize. Let's keep going. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to, to those uh, who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 50 day, 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. 
the gospel is both cosmic and personal. On the one hand, the gospel is cosmic in its scale, meaning we often truncate the good news about Jesus, but the reality is that every single thing that is broken and wrong in the world, and let your imagination run to that. I mean, we could literally spend all year talking about the ways in which our lives and this world and the people we know and and the systems that we know of and the governments and everything about life is broken. And the gospel story is this, that God, the creator of all things, is going to redeem, restore, and fix literally everything that is broken and fallen in the world in his coming kingdom. Everything that's wrong will be renewed. The gospel is cosmic in scale. And on the other hand, it's personal. And that in spite of the fact the gospel is the hope of the renewal of all things, it's also the renewal of you, your life, my life. And our main point this morning that I want us to see is this, the gospel is the power of God to change lives. It's the power of God to change lives. No matter who you are, no matter what your story of life has been, the gospel is the power of God to change lives. In the midst of making his point or his apologetic to the, to the Galatians, which we'll unpack in just a minute, Paul will share a bit of his own story of how the gospel changed him enormously. He says in, in Galatians 1.23 this morning, they were only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. His life was changed by the gospel. Our lives can be changed by the gospel. Now, just this week, I, actually yesterday, I was having a, a conversation with some friends at a, a party, and uh, it's some people that have been going to New Valley for a long time, and they've been very transparent with me and, and some different folks and just saying, we've really struggled in our marriage the last few years. They've been really open and honest. Like, it's, been, it's been hard. And they're a younger couple, newly married, and it's like, so honest about the struggles. And at times, scary struggle. You can probably relate. And then in this party last night, they, they look at me and, and we're talking, how's life and all this stuff. And, and I wonder, like I wonder how they're doing. And the husband with the sort of sheepish grin goes, by the way, our marriage is doing great. And she was right there quickly to confirm it, just with a beaming smile just started nodding her head saying, it's going awesome. And I said, well, what has been the difference? And they had two reasons. The, the husband was quick to say, well, there's two reasons. And the one was this big psychological concept that was fantastic. And uh, in a book he had read, and this thing that they were applying, it'd take too long to get into it. But the second thing, the second thing he said was this, it's learning to apply grace. The grace that we say that we believe about Jesus, that God has forgiven us of all of our sins and, and, and loves us and accepts us, not by what we've done for him, but like just grace. And then learning to apply that in the small things. It is in the small things in marriage, right, that are often the most difficult. It's those, those daily battles, those daily frustrations, and learning, he said, to take this gospel that we talk about constantly and then saying, I'm going to grant you that grace in our marriage today. It's about changed lives. The gospel can change your life. Do you believe that? Some of you have been walking with God for a long time, and you're frustrated. You're like, I used to believe that. <laughs> I even saw it. 
but I don't know any longer. The gospel is still the power to change lives. Some of you are like, I, I don't even know if I believe in Christ. I don't even know if I believe in any of this that you're talking about, so I don't know if I believe that. But listen, thousands, upon, millions of people testify to the reality that the good news about Jesus can change lives, and Paul is one of those. Paul is writing a letter to the churches that were in Galatia, and he is so upset with them that he skipped his sort of normal introductory salutations. You know, normally he would write a letter and say things like, you guys are amazing, I love you, I pray for you, you're the beloved of God, and so forth. And he does that a little bit with the Galatians, but quickly he jumps in, we saw last week in verse six, and says, I am astonished that you have so quickly abandoned the good news that was taught to you, basically. And then he, he calls them, uh, he calls them um, traitors, basically. He's saying, you deserted him who called you in the gospel. Paul had preached this good news. And when I say the word gospel, that literally is a phrase that just means good news. He had preached the gospel that through faith in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, that we could have peace with God and acceptance with God, and, and that's the gospel he would have been preaching. And so this morning, what I want us to see, and throughout this series, it's this. The gospel equals Jesus plus nothing. That's the good news. That's the good news that, that Paul had been preaching, that it is faith in him and him alone. It's faith in what he had did and had done in his life and his death and his resurrection. It's, that's where we put our hope. But a group of people went behind Paul and were teaching after he had established these churches in Galatia, and they were teaching that it's fine to start with the grace of God in Jesus, but you needed to add to that the observance of Judaism and its laws, the ceremonial laws about food, all the ceremonial laws about how to behave on Sunday, all the, all the various aspects of life in Judaism. They're saying ABCs of Christianity, of course, is about faith in Jesus. But if you really want to grow, if you really want the meat of the word, then what you need to do is add the law. You need to add the ceremonial law and all the details of what Mosaic life was like. And Paul says this, no, that's not what gospel obedience looks like. And he goes on basically to say that it's a false gospel. A false gospel equals Jesus plus fill in the blank. For Paul, it was him fighting the, the Judaizers, these folks that wanted to add, hey, be baptized, but you must also be circumcised. Follow Jesus, but all the minute details of the Levitical law, have you, have you read that? It would be fun sometime for us to do that. He's saying, add that. And while you're probably not going to be tempted to do that, you and I, all of us, do this. We take the good news of Jesus and then we destroy the freedom that we have in him by adding some other thing that we look to as the vehicle by which we will be accepted and loved by God. And Paul says this is a false gospel. Today we're going to look at three things as in the flow of the passage, and it's this. It's rebellion against the gospel, the revelation of the gospel, and finally, the results of the gospel. The rebellion, the revelation, and the results. First, the rebellion. And Paul says this in verses 13 through 14. You heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And he had. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Paul was a man, who was a, he was a Pharisee, meaning he had sort of a PhD in, a PhD in Judaism. He was a, 
a pastor of the people of Israel, and it was their burden, the, the, the Pharisees, that they felt they needed to restore, in a, in a sense, Judaism back to sort of a conservative theological view. The way that they saw the world was Judaism had strayed from its roots, and it needed to be restored, but they did it with such an intensity and such a legalism, they had lost love for God and love for their neighbor. Paul was among that group. For you have heard that of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He literally was at the stoning of a deacon named Stephen. In the book of Acts, we read, he sat silently by, actually encouraging, holding people's jackets and coats as they picked up rocks to bludgeon a man to death for simply believing that Jesus was the Messiah. That's how zealous he was for persecuting the church. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Paul was utterly religious, and he was advancing in his faith beyond everyone in his age uh, fundamentally, but he was rebelling against God. And this is interesting, and it's counterintuitive, because when we normally think of rebelling against God, we don't think of it in religious terms. We think of it in irreligious terms. We think of it in terms of, of sinning outright against God, not trying to please God through our good deeds and what we might do and good works and so forth, but through just, this is the will of God for you about power. This is the will of God for you about money. This is God's will for you about sex. And us saying, nah, I don't want to do that. And that's one form of rebellion, and that's the form that we're most used to. But there is another form, and Paul would say maybe it's even more insidious. And it's the rebellion that religion creates in our hearts because we'll say, this is God's will, and I am going to keep it. And I'm going to keep it perfectly, and that's a good thing if your heart and motive is out of love for God and gratitude, but the religious heart is setting itself up in rebellion, saying, I will keep it in order to get God to accept me. And then I will begin to view myself as more righteous than other people. Paul's rebellion against God was counterintuitive. Instead of rebelling through irreligion, uh, behavior, and motives, his rebellion was found in his religious zeal, and it led him to murder. Even murder. He persecuted the church. And this is his apologetic in his rhetoric. You people think you're going to please God by adding to faith in Jesus Judaism. But listen, nobody sought to be a more faithful Jew than me. I was a Pharisee. I, I pursued righteousness. If righteousness could have been attained through works of the law, it would have been me. I had a PhD in it. I was working at it so zealously that I literally had people put to death because I thought they were in opposition to it. And so this is his rhetoric. Listen, don't think you can possibly get peace with God by adding the works of the law. I tried it. It does not work. And if we think about it, there's a great warning in here for us. There's more than one way to rebel against God. On the one hand, of course, there's the typical way. It's, it's being the younger son who leaves the father and goes and, and squanders everything that he owns on wild living. And we understand that as brokenness, as fallenness, as sin and rebellion. 
But if you study Jesus' parable of the two sons, the one that was actually more rebellious ultimately was the older brother who would not come to the party, who would not enter the joy of his father because he was so bitter and religious. And so, listen, church, there's more than one way to rebel. Believe the gospel in humility. We are made new by the gospel and our motives begin to change and we are called to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. When we are called to be disciples of Jesus, we are called to uh, believe in Christ, to be baptized and then we're said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So we are called, we're called to obey him, we're called to follow him, but what is motivating us? If religion is the motivation of if trying to get God to accept me is our motivation, it will only lead to more rebellion, Paul says. But when your heart is filled with love and gratitude, and that is what's driving your motive, to love God and to love your neighbor, there's so much freedom. I want you to think about that for just a minute. You're called to obey God. And yet, you don't. On Sunday, this morning, we just confessed our sin. Blessed are the peacemakers, (laughs) and yet we're not very peaceable. Blessed are those, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth, but we're, we're arrogant. Well, where do I go with that? Well, I run to the gospel, and I say, but in Jesus, I'm forgiven already and loved and accepted, and in light of that, I can confess that reality and that truth, and then I can pursue being a peacemaker. And when I blow it, I repent, and I go back to being a peacemaker, because I already have his acceptance, and this is the difference between the gospel and religion. The gospel is this, I obey because I'm already accepted. And a false gospel is this, or religion says basically, look, I obey in order to be accepted. But do you see the difference? (laughs) Obedience flowing from a heart of love. One of my favorite quotes from Augustine, I'm not even exactly sure if he actually said it, but so many people said he said it, that he probably didn't, but I'm going to say it again. I think Augustine, we have a, you Augustine scholars can tell me where he actually said this or didn't, but he basically said, love God and sin boldly. And he didn't mean sin, like go out and just sin. What he meant was, if you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then live your life in freedom. Go out and live your life with joy, knowing that you're going to mess up, you're going to sin, you're going to be broken, but live your life in the freedom, being motivated out of love. Be free. You're loved and accepted. Now go love your neighbor. You're free and accepted. Now go love your God. The rebellion of the gospel. There's more than one way to rebel. Next is the revelation of the gospel. Paul says, we're going to reread a section in verses 11 through 12 and then 15 through 17. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. And he's feeling a bit defensive about this. You you can feel it in the tone. People are saying, Paul's making this up. This is just man's gospel. This is not the Christian gospel. 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Acts tells us. Paul is on the road to persecute other Christians, to have more Christians enchained and, and put to death, and Jesus literally blinds him, knocks him off his horse, and says, stop, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. When you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. And, and he falls on his knees. He believes in the Lord Jesus. His scales are removed eventually. And he then begins this process of repentance and becoming the Apostle Paul, having his name changed. He's saying, look, <laughs> nobody shared this with me other than the Lord Jesus. I was minding my own business, rebelling and persecuting the church. Jesus himself imparted this truth to me and gave me his gospel. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, it's all grace, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. I was not even seeking the son. I was rebelling against the son. He revealed the son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were in the apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You can still hear the defensive tone. Like, look, I didn't make this up. I didn't receive this from anyone else. This came directly from Jesus. In fact, it was three years of me kind of being alone, being discipled, being humble, before I even met with the other disciples and apostles in Jerusalem. And, and, and I went later, and I hung out with Cephas, who's a nickname for Peter, meaning basically Rocky. I hung out with him for 15 days, and, and I didn't see anybody else. Wait a minute. Yes, I did. James, the brother of the Lord. And I want you to just stop for a minute and think about that. What would that have been like? <laughs> Paul and Peter hanging out together for 15 days. If that's a party I could have like just like looked in on or like see a video of, how cool would, be, would that be? The apostle Paul, that Peter is probably beginning to hear about a little bit, comes to him and tells him his story about how Christ has revealed himself. There's Peter, the rock, and then the brother of the Lord, James, they're hanging out. And then he goes on, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did this. Look, he spent time, and what his whole point of this is this. When you add anything to the gospel, and if you keep saying it's man's gospel, it's not my gospel, you're undermining the reality and the good news, and he's pleading with us. Even though he's defensive, he's really ultimately not defensive for his own namesake. He's defensive because he wants you to know that it's not by works of the law that you can make right with God. It's by grace. He's mad, he's angry, he's defensive, but it's that he wants to protect the good news for your sake, that you may know it. Finally, we're going to look at the results of the gospel. In Galatians 1.23, he said this, when those apostles heard, heard me and hung out with me, they only said this, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. His life was changed. There was results. The gospel is not that Jesus comes into our life and makes us nice people, religious people, cleaned up our act a little bit. The gospel is that we're new. And I wish that when we become new, that when we put our hope in Jesus, that there was like a 
a zapping, I've said this many times, into perfect obedience where we love God fully and love our neighbor and sacrifice everything for others. But the reality is instead he calls us and he makes us new and then he spends our lifetime making us more and more like his son. It's called the process of sanctification. But he makes us, he makes us new people. There are results in the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and there are results. There's life change. Do you believe that? Can you still believe that for yourself? That the gospel is meant to change our life. Does that mean that you're going to be like Paul? Probably not. (laughs) On the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, no. Paul went on to establish the early church in in the the Roman Empire, setting up multiple churches. He wrote one-third of the New Testament. He was apostle of God. Are you going to experience that kind of result? Probably not. But in other ways, what I love about this story is it shows how very unordinary Paul was. He's this extraordinary leader. But on the other hand, there's this one little detail in this passage that's very ordinary, and it is a gospel result that every single one of us need to have in our life. And it's the issue of people-pleasing. On the one hand, I don't ever, ever expect to have the results, the gospel results that Paul had. I would love to, but I'm not the Apostle Paul. On the other hand, there's this very ordinary thing that he mentions in verse 10 that I need so much and so do you, and it's the issue of freedom from the fear of man. In Galatians 1.10, he says this, for, it's a question, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Rhetorical question, it's God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still applying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is an ordinary result of the gospel, and it's one that you and I absolutely need in our life and our heart. Paul is saying, could I serve Christ the way that I'm serving him, going all over the the known world to establish churches and take all these hits that I take uh, if it were me trying to please man? You're saying this is just man's gospel, and I've incorporated this. Let me tell you, I would never do what I did if I were still pleasing man. No, I am a servant of Christ. And here's the reality for you and me. I don't know how you can lead anything when you are bound up with the fear of man. It's so difficult. When I say the fear of man, I mean humanity. How do you lead a family? (laughs) If you're a mother or a father, if you're constantly worried about what your kids think, well, they won't like me if we discipline them. They won't do this, or my mom and dad will think of this of us if we do this or that. You get bound up. You can't go anywhere. How do you lead a church? How do you lead a company? How do you lead anything if you're bound up with the fear of man? And yet we all are. Preachers are strange people, I think. Um, Being one, I know I am. (laughs) And on the one hand, I do what I do because I received a call. I felt called to do this. I would not have done it had I not felt this internal call from God and had that confirmed by other people. I I just wouldn't have done this. And so on the one hand, I, I do that. But there's another part of people who preach for a living and communicate for a living where you gotta just say it's a little weird and there's gotta be some part in the, the preacher that is into people, please, right? I mean, we stand before hundreds of people every week telling you how to live and walk with God. It's kinda weird, right? 
I don't know of a single pastor that doesn't wrestle with this issue of the fear of man or desire to, desire to have people's approval. Every time I preach, there's a sense in which I say to myself, oh, I, I hope they like what's going on here, you know? Let's face it. We all wrestle with the fear of man, but there is a gospel freedom that comes when you get to the point where you say, I want you to like me. I, I hope you like me. I enjoy people liking me but I don't need you to like me. And the gospel can free us to do this. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I think this is one of our greatest problems, is we're terrified of what people think of us. And in that sense, we're seeing that life and our identity and, and the gospel is love Christ, but I got to have people like me. I need their approval. I need it profoundly. And this has been a snare for the human heart forever. It's back in the Old Testament and in, in the Proverbs. I mean, this has been a condition of the human heart forever. But friends, I think the issue of social media is amplifying this problem of the human heart. I like social media in some ways, and I, and I hate it in others. You probably feel the same way. But every time we post something, right, for the most part, isn't there a little bit of sense in which you say, I hope people like this. <laughs> I'm going to post this picture of the church or a picture of my family vacation or this this. Beautiful, and we always pick the pictures, right, uh, that, that put our best foot forward, our organization's best foot forward, and so we put it out there, and, and then we kind of say, oh, I hope somebody likes this. And not all motives are bad. We, we have a media team, and we do this. We post a lot of stuff. Why? We want people to come and hear the gospel. We want people to connect to this church, so we're going to keep doing that, but there's a part of me on a personal level when I do it is, oh, I hope people like it. If I only get three or four responses, I'm very tempted to press delete. But if I get 100 likes on something, ooh, people like me. Approval. Approval. We want people's approval so badly. We crave it. It's like a drug. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who has a good friend who is what people would call a social media influencer. How do you become a social media influencer? I don't, know, I don't really know the answer to that exactly, except in this person's case, just a person with an Instagram account. But when she posts pictures of herself, which she does every day, people like it. I think when it started, her friends liked it. And her pictures were so nice, and she's so attractive that her, her friend's friends started liking it. And then her friend's friend's friends started liking it. And her friend's friends, you get it? <laughs> to now where she has... When I say thousands, I mean thousands upon thousands of followers. I speak to hundreds of people on a Sunday. Some pastors speak to thousands. One church here in town speaks to about 25,000 people every week. When she clicks send on a picture and an image, it goes up to equally that kind of people. I'm talking 20s of thousands of people see her pictures. And she shared with this other friend of mine of how enslaving it's been. And how desperately she wants to just walk away from it. She sees the trap of it. She sees the power it has over her. And how it's so tempting every day to do this. It's a hit. 
Think about it. On your own social media, it feels great when you get 10, 20, 100. Imagine thousands of people that you don't even know going, I like you. I adore you. You're so beautiful. Imagine. But she knows how shallow it is. She knows the doctored photos. She knows the time it takes to get the picture just right, to take that same picture over and over, to present it to the world. And then we get likes. But I have great news for you. Jesus doesn't like you. (laughs) What? He loves you. Do I love my boys? Yes. Do I like them? Sometimes. Not always. But I love them. That means I accept them. They're in my life. I don't like everything about them. They don't like me all the time. We're not talking about like talking about acceptance. We're talking about approval of the one who matters most. You have God's acceptance, the one who matters most in Jesus Christ. The pure gospel is this. When you put your hope and faith in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, you don't have his like, you have his love, his sacrificial, substitutional love for you. He has brought you into his life. So when you fail him, he still loves you. When you sin, when you're still broken and rebellious, he still loves you. He's still redeeming you, calling you into more and more hope and trust of him. But you have his acceptance. And so we then don't have to live our lives as needy, clingy people going, I hope you like me. I love it when you like me, but I don't need you to like me. Right? How could I possibly stand up here every day and say hard things like with, if, if I needed you to love me all the time? I don't. I have Jesus' approval. I like it when you like me. I don't have to have you like me anymore because the gospel's been that powerful for me. It's powerful in my marriage too. It's wonderful to have your spouse like you, but even greater, I have my wife's love. She has my love. And, and, and so, listen, guys, the freedom, the freedom in the gospel is so, so powerful. The gospel has changed lives in extraordinary ways and ordinary ways. And everyone, a common besetting sin of all of us is we need people's approval, and it's a snare. I love hearing how Jesus changed his lives. If you're in a gospel community, I encourage you to spend this year, this school year, taking time and and sharing your story with one another. Just one person, before you get into the study, just have them share their story of how they came to faith in Jesus, or if they're not yet a Christian, what they're wrestling with. Tell your stories. This past week, I, I read the story of Nicole Cliff, who is an author who lives in Utah and now is a follower of Jesus, but just a couple years ago was an atheist. She was raised in Kingston, uh, Ontario, and uh, she got a full-ride scholarship to Harvard. And during her time in college, her assumptions about life and faith were just totally solidified, and she she became a full-fledged atheist. She was raised by a father who was an atheist, and after Harvard, absolutely convinced of her atheistic assumptions. After college, she worked for a hedge fund for a bit and eventually started a feminist blog called The Toast. It became very well-known. 
And this week, I read this excerpt of her story of how she came to faith in Jesus. And she was going through a really difficult time. One of her children she, uh, was going through something, and she was extremely worried about her child. And she said this, One time I said, Be with me to an empty room. It was embarrassing. I didn't know why I said it or to whom. I brushed it off, I moved on, and the situation resolved itself with her child, and she didn't think about it again. And she says this, I know how people hear that story. Oh, of course Nicole was struggling and she needed a larger framework for her life and that's part of why she became a follower of Jesus. But she said in this article, I want you to know as we read this, this is not the whole reason. She needed a crutch. Like my dad, who was also an atheist, so I was raised by a pack of atheists too, and he was a professor and agnostic, probably more of an agnostic than atheist, but he would say, Christians are just people who need a crutch. They're weak. And then I became one. And then I became a pastor, so it became really interesting in our dinner conversations. And he would say that to me, yeah, I think, you know, Christians are just weak who need a crutch. And I would say, you're absolutely right. That's absolutely the truth. Jesus is our crutch. He's far bigger than a crutch. The problem is, Dad, you need a crutch and you just don't realize it. You need the cross. The second starting point, she said, is usually what I, le- I lead with in my story. I was surfing the internet, and I came across a- an article by John Orberg. He's a pastor in California, and it was an obituary for a philosopher named Dallas Willard. Now, she was very close friend with Pastor John Orberg's daughter, and she said, I've always had a wonderful relationship with uh, their parents, Pastor Ortberg, and this struck me as sweetly deluded in their faith. So I clicked on the article, and Somebody once asked Dallas in this article if he believed in total depravity. And he wrote, I believe in sufficient depravity. Uh, What's that? I believe that every human being is sufficiently depraved that when we get to heaven, no one will be able to say, I merited this. A few minutes into reading the piece, I burst into tears, she wrote. This is an atheist. Later that day, I burst into tears again. And the next day, while brushing my teeth, while falling asleep, while in the shower, while feeding my kids, I would burst into tears. And I should say here, I'm a happy, even-keeled soul. (laughs) I wasn't even sad at the time. I wasn't frightened. I just had all these emotions about faith, and I was wondering. I decided to buy a Dallas Willard book. I read his Hearing God. I cried. I bought Lewis Meads, My God and I, I cried. I bought Sarah Miles, Take This Bread, I cried. It was getting out of hand. You just can't go around crying all the time. And at this point, I reached a crossroads, she said, and several of you are at a crossroads, the same crossroads. You believe, but you doubt, and you don't know what to do, and you're you're wrestling with faith. At this point, I reached a crossroads. I sat myself down, And I said, okay, Nicole, you have two choices. It's good to talk to yourself, by the way. Okay, Nicole, you have two options. Option one, you can stop reading books about Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Option two, you could think with greater intention about why you are overwhelmed by your emotions about Jesus. It occurred to me that if option two proved fruitless, I could always return to option one and quit reading books about Jesus. So I emailed a friend who was a Christian, and I asked if we could talk about Jesus. She said yes. 
if anyone ever emails you and asks you to have a conversation about Jesus, say yes. I was crying constantly while thinking about Jesus because I had begun to believe that Jesus really was who he said he was. But for some reason, that idea had honestly not yet occurred to me. It happens like this. 2017, towards the end of it, I was having lunch with a guy who's been visiting here off and on. He asked to have lunch. We're hanging out. He's telling me all the reasons why he's not yet a Christian, but during the conversation, I said to him, but I think you are. He goes, oh, I don't think I am yet. And I said, no, I think you are. He said, I don't think I am. I said, do you believe that Jesus was Messiah, the Son of God? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe he died on a cross to save sinners from sin? I do. Uh, so substitutionary, yeah, okay. Uh, do you believe he rose from death? Yeah, I believe that one too. Do you believe he's coming back? Yeah. I go, you're a Christian, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> you may not like it. Get baptized because you're in, dog. <laughs> but then it did occur to me as though it had always been there. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus is who he said he is and I believe. So when my friend called, I told her awkwardly that I wanted to have a relationship with God, and we prayed and giggled a bit and cried a bit, and then she sent me a stack of Henry Nouwen books, and here we are today. It's beautiful. There are times I feel a little bit like a medieval peasant, she says, and that I believe wholly in God now. But don't always do what he wants. My Christian conversion has granted me no simplicity. Hear this. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, hear this. It will not grant you simplicity. Peace, yes, not simplicity. It has complicated all of my relationships, changed how I feel about money, messed up my public persona, and made me wonder if I should be on Twitter at all. (laughs) Obviously, Obviously, she says, it's been very beautiful. I decided to stalk her on Twitter before I went and quoted this long story to see, like, what, it, what is she saying on Twitter? And it was a, mix, a mishmash of all kinds of ideas and things, and there was some rough language at points. And then I'm reading just in, in a couple days of her, her, uh, her blog or her Twitter page, and then she says, I'm, I'm in a hotel tonight eating a hamburger, kind of bored, and I'm kind of tired and busy, so I don't have a lot of time. But if anyone wants to chat about Jesus, let me know. And then a bunch of her friends who are you know, in the same worldview that she, she's been in, said, starts tweeting back going, I have no idea what to do with you on this whole Jesus thing, but I'm intrigued. How does somebody like you, how does somebody like you become a follower of Jesus? Obviously, she says, it's been very beautiful. It is beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is the power of God to change lives. Friends, it can change your life. The gospel's not an it, it's a, it's a person, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus can change your life. If you've never walked with him, Jesus can change your life. If you've been walking with him every day of your life, Jesus can change your life. Let's pray.